You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and look at chapter 4 of Ephesians with me, and I'd like to read verses 22 and 24. While you're doing that, I just want to say how excited I am for, for Nate and for your um, position here at, uh, at Harvest Niagara as the director of uh, youth, students, and young adult ministry. Uh, Nate, you are a gift to this church, and God is going to, uh, to bless this church through you. We were so blessed by your message a couple of weeks ago and just excited and delighted for you for the way that God is calling you and shaping you and growing you into a, uh, into a man of God and into a servant of the church. And we look forward to seeing what God does in your life in the years to come. And while I'm saying that, I, just, I also want to say this. Um, Brett's way at the back there, just sitting there, and I just wanted to say thank you to Brett. He has, over these last number of months, done just so much for our church family. You have blessed us. You have worked so hard. You have poured your life out tirelessly for this congregation. When a whole bunch of people were leaving, you were picking up responsibilities and uh, serving. And you and Bria... Uh, deserve our thanks and our gratitude and a real expression of uh, appreciation. We just so value what you've done and we value you as a couple and you as a pastor, Brett, and we're just so grateful for the, the ministry that you have had amongst us in these last, uh, last many months. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I would like to read to you 22 through 24 where Paul is talking about this. He says that we are to put off our old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the Apostle Paul in chapter 4 tells us that we have to have a putting off of our old self, our sinful self, and a putting on of Christ's likeness. We have to put on true righteousness and holiness. And then Brett last week challenged us in his really challenging message. He began to speak about what this putting on looks like, and and he identified five things that we are called to put on. So we're supposed to take off lying and put on truth-telling. We're supposed to take off, put off anger, unjust anger, and so that we do not sin and, and put on a new kind of behavior. Don't go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down on our wrath. And don't give Satan an opportunity to cause division in our families and in our marriages and, and in our churches. We're to put off stealing. And we're to work hard so that we can have something to share with others. Put off selfish stealing and put on generous giving. We're to put off hurting others with our words, using destructive words that destroy and tear down and hurt, and put on words that edify and build up and strengthen and give grace to others. We're we're to stop grieving the Holy Spirit and lashing out at each other with with anger and venomous uh, talk and slander 
and, and we're to put on love and mercy and forgiveness. We're supposed to love one another the way Christ has loved us. Before salvation, before Christ intersected the lives of these Ephesian Christians, this is who they were. These, these were sons of disobedience, and so as a consequence, they lied. As a consequence, they held grudges. They stole. They were selfish. They used their words to hurt and tear down rather than to build up and to edify. And they were filled with anger and bitterness and wrath. And now Paul is saying to these Ephesian Christians, he says, hey, folks, in Christ, you were radically changed. You have been born again. Your old self has been crucified, Romans chapter 6. Your old man has been crucified. The old has passed away. The new has come. So you need to put that on. You need to take off the old and put on the new and live a life marked by true righteousness and holiness. So Paul in this section is saying this. Not only are we enabled by the Holy Spirit to live radically different lives, we are expected to live radically different lives. We're enabled by the Spirit and expected by God to live radically different than our non-Christian neighbors. We're called to live a distinct life that is separate and apart from the life that people in our culture are living today. They are sons of disobedience. We are to be sons and daughters of obedience, Christ-likeness. And it's by this transformation, it's, this, it's by this newness of life that we are able to say with confidence that we are children of God, that we are truly born again children of God. So how do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you were to ha- get hit by a bus today and were to die, how, would you, how can you know that you're going to heaven? Well, you may say, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Don't trust that. Well, I went forward at an altar call. Don't believe it. I believe the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. I can, I can recite the canons of Dort. Don't trust it. I felt really guilty about my sin once. Don't trust it. The thing that we should trust is the person in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ who, when he saves a man or a woman, transforms him or her into his likeness. When a person is saved by the person of Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he begins to transform us and begins to produce in our life true righteousness and holiness. That's how we know. Is going forward at an altar call a good thing? Sure. Is praying the sinner's prayer a positive thing? Sure. Is is remembering, memorizing the Heidelberg Catechism a good thing? Go for it. It's a wonderful thing. But what marks us out, what distinguishes us as truly saved people is that we have put off sin and that we have put on true righteousness and holiness that we're living Christ-like lives. That is what legitimizes our salvation. What ultimately proves that we are new creatures in Christ is that we are living a radically different life. In chapter five, Paul goes on with this same theme. And he's talking now about two things that 
I think he leaves to the end because perhaps they are the most difficult. In some senses, stopping lying and telling the truth it might be hard, but it's doable. In some senses, stop stealing and work hard with your hands so you can have something to share with others. It's maybe difficult, but it's doable. I think what Paul does beginning of chapter 5, he kind of raises the bar a little bit. And he begins to talk about two things that are really, really challenging. The first one is a life of radical Christ-like love, number one. And the second is a life of radical sexual purity. And by the way, moms and dads, this might be a little PG, so just a heads up so that you can, if there's little ones around, you can, you can take uh, steps to um, get them watching Veggie Tales or something. Um, anyways, so, so the Lord Jesus requires us, lastly, to deal with these two things. A radical Christ-like sacrificial love for one another, and secondly, a radical sexual purity. These last two, loving God the way God has loved us and controlling our sexual impulses so that our sexual activity accords with God's original design for his people are two very difficult commands, and we're going to talk about both of them this morning. But... As resurrected, spirit-filled believers, remember, we are both enabled and expected to live this kind of life. We are called to live this radical holiness and purity. So let's look at each of these individually. The first one is a radical, a life of radical Christ-like love. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God. Now, how do you do that? No one has seen God at any time. So how do you imitate God? Paul sort of answers that question for us by what he says in this next section. As beloved children, walk in love, how? As Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So what he is saying is that as children of God, we are to look to Jesus Look at his example and follow. Who is Jesus? He is the incarnate son of God. Jesus said to, to Philip, if you have seen me, Philip, you have seen God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at me. And so Paul is essentially saying that be imitators of God, look to Jesus, and live like Jesus. How did Jesus live? He loved us and gave himself for us. That's what the apostle is saying here. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, that is how we are to love one another. Now, if that phrase sounds familiar, it should. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be preaching in, in Ephesians 5, a little bit later on, and we're going to be challenging husbands to love your wives. How? As Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. So Paul is using this principle twice in chapter 5. Once later on, he talks about the responsibility of a husband to unconditionally and selflessly lay his life down for his wife. Here, Paul says exactly the same thing, that we are to unconditionally and selflessly lay our lives down for one another. That's what the church is. It is marked by a radical love, a radical selflessness, Whereas Paul says in Philippians 2, we consider others as more important than ourselves. 
Now that is radical. That is not normal. That, that is not what most, that's not what people do. That's not what anybody does. But it's what Christians do. It's what people who are filled with the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are enabled and called and expected to live, this is what we do. This is how we live. As Christ selflessly laid down his life in order to redeem us, we too must be willing to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters in Christ and to forgive them the way the Lord has forgiven us. What Paul is saying is that the example of Jesus must be the template, it must be the pattern that we follow in our lives as we interact with one another. We must model our relationships on Jesus. And what was Christ's offering? What what was it that he offered to God? He offered his life, and that was a fragrant sacrifice, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul Paul employs that phrase here. It's used over 50 times in the Old Testament, and it described how when the priest would burn the offering, the smoke would go up, and that offering was seen as a fragrant sacrifice, a fragrant offering in the nostrils of God. And so when Jesus died, his sacrifice was a fragrant sacrifice to God. It pleased God that Jesus offered up himself in our place in order to rescue and redeem us. And the implication is this. When we love each other, when we sacrifice for one another, when we lay our lives down for one another, when we serve one another the way that the Lord served us and laid his life down for us, We love each other, but, and more importantly, it is a fragrant sacrifice to God. It is an expression of love and devotion and commitment to him. So when you love me, that's great. I'm blessed, but the Lord is blessed more. You are loving God when you love me. When I love you, I am loving God. I'm expressing my love, my devotion, my commitment, my heart to him. So this is radical. It's a new commandment. It's a radical command for every new creature in Christ to model your life after the incarnate Son of God. And as we do... We express love and devotion and affection for God himself. When you love a brother, you're loving God. When you forgive a sister, you're loving God. When you serve, when you bless, when you sacrifice for, put up with, or forbearing with a brother or a sister, you're ultimately not doing it for them. You're doing it to him. As I said, it's radical, it's supernatural, it's selfless, and it demonstrates to our world that Jesus is in our midst, because there's nowhere else where this happens, nowhere else where this can happen apart from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do this apart from the power and the infilling and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, you're enabled to do this by grace. You're expected to do it by God. 
But it can't happen. It won't happen. It doesn't happen anywhere else other than the church. And as we love one another like this, it creates an ethos. It creates an environment that causes the world to take notice. And if we would love like this, there would be no end to the impact that Harvest Niagara could have on this region. There would be no end to the impact that this church could have on this community. But how do we often act? How do, what do we emulate? Do we emulate God in Christ generally? Or do we emulate the world and the values of the world? Sadly, most of us as Christians are, are torn between selfless, sacrificial, Christ-like love and selfishness. We prioritize self. My needs often take precedence. My wants, my desires, my aspirations trump everything else and everyone else. And when we live this way, what does the church become? It just becomes another gathering of self-absorbed, selfish people. It, it, it's just a social club, a religious social club that has no dynamic, no power at all. Too often the church is not significantly different than the world around it. We're no different than we would have been had we not met Jesus. We're selfish, thinking about our needs and our wants instead of thinking about others. And it, and it's, and it goes beyond that, sadly. Instead of forgiving like Christ forgave us, we hold grudges, we gossip, we slander, we judge, we accuse, we hurt back, we become bitter, we become divisive. We use our tongues to tear down, as Paul said earlier on here. Galatians 5.15 speaks about this. He says, be careful if you bite and devour one another, lest you consume one another. So many churches are just consumed by selfishness and pride. People raging at each other. And the Holy Spirit just packs the, his bags and goes someplace else. How is it possible that we can preach a gospel of forgiveness and grace and mercy and love and not offer it to others? You know, I said that a couple of weeks ago, and I want to say it again today because the scriptures force us to deal with it. How is it that we can have the temerity and the impertinence and the gall and the audacity to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ his unconditional, absolute forgiveness at the cost of his life and we refuse to give it away? Like, how is that, how is that possible? It, it, not only do we belie the gospel, not only, not only does that kind of behavior deny the gospel. It makes a mockery of the gospel. A church that can't live together in this kind of love makes a mockery of the gospel. When you hear about churches splitting, when you hear about factions in churches, when you hear about people fighting like cats and dogs, biting and devouring one another in churches, this was going on in the Galatian churches, it just makes the gospel a laughingstock. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. 
Is what Paul is calling us to easy to do? No. Be imitators of God. That's radical. No, no one to this point I'm aware of in all of human history had ever said anything like this. Live like God. Well, we don't know what God looks like. Well, then, live like his son, the incarnate son of God. Like, I don't, I don't know much more radical statement in the Bible than this. But it's what we are called to, we're expected to, and we are enabled to by the power and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. God requires it of us, Harvest Niagara. This isn't just kind of an ethereal, pie-in-the-sky theological concept that we talk about. We are called to be the church, to be a power of transformative, impactful ministry in our world to be penetrating light in our culture, to change it. How do we do that? We live like Jesus. We sacrifice ourselves for one another. We lay down our lives for one another. We forgive the unforgivable. We serve people who don't deserve it. We are kind to people who aren't kind to us. We put up with people, you know, the EGR, extra grace required people. We just put up with them and we love them. That's what we are called to do. And when we do that, the gospel which we preach suddenly has an example, an illustration. It has a flesh and blood living proof that it's true. So, is it hard? Yeah. Number six is real hard. It requires us to put ourselves second, to put others first, to do what Jesus did in your marriage, in your home with your kids, in your Bible study, your small group, in your church fellowship with brothers and sisters. It's hard. But we're enabled by the Spirit and expected by God to do it. So we must. We must. Because the truth of the Christian faith is validated and substantiated. It's proven to be true as we live this extraordinary, supernatural kind of life. A life of radical love. A life that emulates, that models itself on the pattern that Jesus gave to us. The second thing he talks about in verses 3 through 7 is a radical sexual purity. Now, the ancient world, as I've said before, and I think you know, was, was a place of permissiveness, immorality, carnality. Cicero, who, who died the year after Julius Caesar died, 43 BC, so he's basically a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, maybe 50, 60 years separated from the Apostle Paul, he said this, is there anyone who thinks that a young man should, not be, for, should be forgiven the love of a courtesan or a mistress? Is there anyone out there who thinks that a young man shouldn't have a mistress? It was, it was sort of like commonly expected that that's the way things worked. Most temples in the ancient world were funded by ritual prostitution. 
both male and female prostitutes. That's how they made their money. Brothels were public. They were ubiquitous. They were on street corners. They advertised. It was sort of a normal part of life. And homosexuality was prevalent. It was accepted. And it was celebrated in first century culture. The morals of first century Rome, the ethic of first century Rome, Roman culture, was, if anything, more perverse, more corrupt, more immoral than 21st century Canada. And so the idea of one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship was both radical and laughable in the first century. The idea of God's design being lived out, and this, I'm not talking about Jewish culture, now I'm talking about Roman culture into which Paul was writing here, Ephesus. The idea of God's design, one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship was as laughable as it was radical. And so Paul had to speak very strongly, and this is not the first time he has done this to the Ephesians. He had to speak very strongly about sexual purity and holiness and righteousness in their lives. And it's a message that we as a church need to hear. Because sadly, the sexual behavior of Christians in churches in Canada is not terribly dissimilar from that of our culture. We Christians commit adultery. We watch pornography. We fall into sexual addictions. We struggle with homosexual attraction. We spend hours in explicit romance novels. And our behavior isn't terribly dissimilar from that of our culture. The divorce rate amongst Christians is less than, but still very high than our culture. And these are issues that we have to talk about. So what does Paul say? How do we deal with these things? The first thing he says, if you just read with me from verse 3 on, the first thing he says is this, but sexual immorality in all impurity and covetousness, that word covetousness there is just basically the word for greed, and it really means just wanting more of the same. So you could read it this way, sexual immorality, impurity, and wanting greedily more of the same must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In other words, what he's saying to us is that we shouldn't be spending time thinking about things that are perverse and wrong and sinful and carnal. We shouldn't discuss or question or deliberate about what God has called sin. We shouldn't spend time exploring or fixating on or delving into what God calls sin. In other words, we should just accept as sinful that which God says is sinful. There doesn't need to be discussion. There doesn't need to be dialogue. We don't need to have debates. We don't need to delve into the question because the question has been answered because God has spoken. We don't need to be like Eve 
who says, has God really said, maybe we should discuss this. We should maybe talk about it. Because God has spoken on these issues. But sadly, right now, there's a whole bunch of so-called Christians influencing, influencing the Christian community, saying things that shouldn't be said. Like, is homosexuality really a sin? Is the behavior of homosexuality really wrong? Doesn't it make sense for a young couple to live together before they get married just to make sure they're compatible? Doesn't that kind of make sense? Does God require, really require that people live celibate lives after certain sorts of divorces? If the divorce isn't legitimized by Scripture, does God, can he really expect that of us? And there's all kinds of questions that people are answering, asking, and the answer is, yet God has spoken. We don't need to talk about these things anymore. We don't need to dialogue about them. We don't need to speak about them because God has spoken in his word. Yes, homosexual activity is sinful activity. Yes, fornication, sex before marriage, is wrong. Yes, there are some instances in divorce where a man or a woman can be remarried, but in the majority of instances, when that marriage falls apart, you're the guilty party, God expects you to live a celibate life as a consequence. We don't need to talk about it. God's spoken. Has God really said? Yeah, he did. And when God says it, that settles it. We don't need a dialogue. We don't need a conversation. We don't need to think out loud, well, maybe, perhaps, but if you look at it this way, but we don't go there because God has spoken. And what he has said is holy and righteous and true. So, if we're going to deal with, with this issue, if we're going to live radically pure sexual lives, the first thing that we've got to understand is this. That God has spoken and we need to acquiesce. We need to just say, okay, that's it. If that's what God has said, that's true. And I'm not going to push back. I'm not going to equivocate. I'm not going to look for a loophole. I'm not going to try to wiggle my way out of this. I'm just simply going to accept that God's ethic is God's ethic and that God's word is true. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. We must guard the purity of our lives. In the next verse, look at what Paul says. Let, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So the next thing that Paul says is this. When you are talking, you're not talking about what God has said is right and wrong. That's settled. But when you do talk, make sure there's no crudeness, filthiness, foolishness in your conversation. Don't even play around the edges of the issue is what he's saying. Now, why does he say this? Why is it such an important thing for the Apostle Paul to say, don't even talk about what God has called sin. Just accept that it is sin. And when you do talk, don't talk about crude things or sinful things. 
or filthy things. Why does he say that? I think, just my take on it, I could be wrong here. It's my own humble but nonetheless accurate opinion. (laughs) I would suggest that he is concerned about the danger of us becoming desensitized to sin. It's kind of like the frog in the, the kettle kind of analogy. Don't play around the edges of sin. The danger is that in talking about something sinful or joking about something sinful, we can be led to trivialize and to belittle and to diminish the gravity of that particular thing. And oftentimes when we diminish the gravity of sin, we pave the way for us to commit that sin. When we trivialize or diminish the gravity, when we belittle the significance of a particular sin by joking about it or making fun of it or laughing about it, the gravity of that sin becomes less significant. So instead of talking about adultery, what does our culture talk? Well, it's an affair. It's just an affair. A peccadillo. Little thing that happened. And it's not. It's an affront to Almighty God. When we see something as trivial or inconsequential, it paves the way for us to participate. Taking sin lightly, in other words, is oftentimes the first step in us being caught up into that particular sin. We become desensitized when we trivialize. So if Paul were writing today, he might say something like this. Don't watch or don't listen to or don't entertain yourself or download anything that trivializes, diminishes, belittles sexual sin. So, he might say, there's certain sitcoms that you should just not watch. There's certain movies, stand-up comics, late-night television, romance novels that flood our mind and trivialize and actually celebrate sexual sin. Because when we do that, even though we may believe that God has spoken, yes, fornication is sin, adultery is sin, homosexuality is sin, pornography is sin, although we might accept that God has said that, when we listen and watch that God's ethic being trivialized and mocked and scoffed and maybe sometimes celebrated, it does something within us. It lessens the gravity, it lessens the significance of that sin, and it paves the way for us to consider participating in that sin. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Don't become desensitized to the grave danger and the consequences, which we'll talk about in a second, of sexual sin. It's too easy to become numb, to become insensate, to become anesthetized to the gravity and the danger of it. 
It's horrific. It's horrific. So that's the second thing. If we're going to deal with radical purity, if we're going to life, lead a life of radical purity, we've got to agree with God. Secondly, let's not laugh at what God calls sin. Thirdly, choose to be thankful. Now, I looked at that, this passage this week where he, at the end of verse 4 he says, instead of talking filthy things and crude things and foolish things, be thankful. And I thought, where did that come from? What's that all about? So I started thinking about it, and I think about my own life. And oftentimes, when I go to sleep at night, I'll reach over and touch Cindy, right? I'll just reach over and touch her. And I, I'm generally praying when I do that, and I'm saying, thank you, God, for my wife, because I'm thankful for her. And then as I'm going to sleep, I'm just generally thanking God for things. I thank God for my kids. I thank God for my beautiful home. I thank God for the ministry that he has given me at Harvest Niagara. I thank God for a lot of things. But invariably, unless I fall asleep, but invariably, as I thank God for things, I kind of zero in on one thing. Thank you, Lord, that I know I'm going to heaven. Thank you, Lord, that I have confidence that one day I'll see you face to face. Thank you that I have this relationship with you. Thank you that that relationship was purchased by your sacrifice for me on the cross. Thank you for your blood. Thank you that every single one of my sins is buried in the depths of the sea and you remember them no more. Thank you that I'm your beloved child. Thank you. You see, thanksgiving in the heart of a Christian, you can start anywhere. Just start anywhere. Thanksgiving in the heart of the Christian will always lead you back to the cross. Always does. And I think that's why Paul says... Instead of joking and mocking and, and, and dealing with these crude things, you want to guard your heart? You want to guard yourself? Go back to the cross. Be thankful. Because at the, at the pinnacle of thankfulness for every Christian is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And what does that bring us to? It brings us to the gravity and the ugliness and the vile, horrific, nature of sin. It brings us to realize what it cost Jesus to redeem you and me. It puts sin in perspective. Instead of trivializing and belittling and dismissing sin, it puts sin in its rightful place. It shows us the horror of sin. It gives us a perspective on the gravity of sin. It put Jesus on the cross, and he suffered in our place in order that we would be forgiven. He laid his life down in order that we might have eternal life. But it brings us to that realization of how horrific sin truly is. And when we come to that understanding when we see Jesus on the cross, we see his blood, his life being spilled out. We see God punishing his son for sin. It gives us a revulsion. It begins to create within our heart a hatred for sin. And that has to be part of our journey to sexual purity, to really learn to hate the sin 
that put Jesus on the cross. Freedom from sin, I think, really has to go through that, that stop. We can agree with God. We can keep our minds pure, which is critical. But we've got to understand how horrific sin actually is. And then fourthly, we've got to remember that God will judge sin. God will judge sin. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, says Paul, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is greedy for more, which is idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know as well as I do that today the media, our cultural elites, celebrate sexual sin. They tell us that to take a stand against it is in itself sinful by virtue of the fact that we are being intolerant and unloving and unkind and not inclusive. The world is turned upside down. And we are seen as the ones who are wrong because of her intolerance and her judgmental attitude. But what does God say? Let me repeat it. God has called us to a design, and that is one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous relationship. That's God's plan, and it is radical. Our world doesn't like it. That's what God has called us to. And so God's word is very clear. Verse 5. Anyone who lives and dies in sexual immorality or impurity, who lives and dies greedy for more of the same, is an idolater. That thing becomes an idol in our lives. We are no different than the Israelites 3,000 years ago who would go to the high places and worship at the Asherah pole, which was probably a phallic symbol in the fertility rites of that day and age. That becomes our God. And how would we expect God, why would we expect God to take us into his presence when we have spent our life worshiping at another altar and worshiping another God? Most addictions, we had, we had dinner last night with Margaret and Charles, and uh, we were talking about addictions at supper. And we talked about the fact that most addictions, in most addictions, we are ultimately um, worshiping an idol. That thing that gives us security, that thing that gives us hope, that thing that brings peace, that thing that gives us a sense of significance and worth, that idol. We may say I'm worshiping God, but in practice, our addiction shows us that we're worshiping an idol, something that has taken God's place. And that's why Paul says it so clearly. How can you think that any idolater who is worshiping immorality and impurity and wanting more of the same, how can you imagine that that person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ? Don't think that way. Because it makes no sense. Idolaters aren't saved. They're not part of the kingdom. Our addictions will be our God, or God will be our God. 
You can't serve two masters. That's, that's the bottom line, and we need to understand that. But remember, we are not only expected, we're enabled to live differently if Christ is in us. If we've been born again, we're enabled and expected to live above this. But he says something else in verse 6 that's really important for us to see. Don't be deceived with empty words. For because of these things, what things? Sexual immorality. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is coming upon this world because of this world's sin. And we, can't, we should not be deceived with empty words. And there are a lot of people out there who are sharing a lot of empty words that are bringing comfort to the damned. And we need to be aware of what they are. So, some people teach us to worship a caricature of God. The Bible says God is love. Some people want to say love is God. And worship love. As long as it's motivated by love, as long as it's infused with love, as long as it's soaked in acceptance and tolerance and, and grace and inclusivity, then it's good. And that's a lie. Because God is also holy. God is love, but the quality of God that stands out most in the scriptures is the quality of holiness. Too often these people who are deceiving us with these empty words are telling us that God is love. It's okay. Just a big loving guy in the sky who puts his arms around everyone and loves us unconditionally. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God loves us on the condition of the cross. Secondly, people <clears throat> give us this empty word. Well, we live in more enlightened times now. We live in more enlightened times, and, and we've got to keep up with the times. That was written then. doesn't apply today. Times have changed. And they forget that morality, well, morality is Malleable Morality is simply the definition of what the mores of a particular culture at a particular time. But God's ethics are not malleable. They don't change. God doesn't change. Jesus died for everyone, right? More empty words. Jesus died so that the world could be saved. Jesus died so that everyone is forgiven. Very popular pastor not too far from us who, who preaches that. Big church, lots of people. Doesn't matter that he was an immoral, immoral man. It doesn't matter that he was a thief. It doesn't matter that he was a drunkard. It doesn't matter that he professed and blasphemed the name of Christ and didn't profess Christ. God's grace is bigger. God's mercy is wider. You can't outsin God's love. Empty words, lies. Designed to give peace to the damned. Or how about this empty lie? God's greatest desire is for your happiness. I hear that all the time. Doesn't God want you to be happy? 
What would make you happy? Divorce that guy. Divorce that woman. Start up again. Start over. God wants you to be happy. A lie out of the pit of hell. God doesn't care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. Folks, we've got to fear God more than we love our sin. We've got to fear God more than we love our sin. Because if we don't, the wrath of God will be upon us. Because if we don't change, who are we? We are the sons of disobedience. The spirit, is, the spirit of this world is working in us still. Ephesians 2, 1. We haven't been transformed. We haven't been changed. So, lastly, and quickly, we have to choose not to partake with sinners. We must make a choice to live differently. Do not partake with them, verse 7. If I am enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to live differently, I must. I have an expectation given me by God to make a choice. And I guess this is where this message sort of boils down to. There's one of two choices you need to make. You need to choose to love radically. Love someone. I don't know who that person is. I don't know what the situation is. You may need to go and take them some money. You may need to go and ask for forgiveness. You may need to go and help them in some way that seems kind of crazy to you. But the Lord is calling you to do it. You need to choose to do it. He's called you and enabled you to do it. So go do it. Or you need to break free. You need to live differently. You need to embrace a radically different approach to your sexuality. How? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. You agree with God that sin is sin. You guard your mind. You, you protect what's, what is getting into your thinking. You don't trivialize, dismiss, diminish the gravity of sin. Start being thankful. Get back to the cross. Realize what Jesus did, the enormity of the price he paid, the gravity of sin, the enormity of the weight of sin. It's not an insignificant thing. Remember that God will judge sin. There is no one who is immoral or who is impure or who worships sex who will inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ. Nobody. So we must change. And you say, well, I can't. I'm addicted to these romance novels. I'm addicted to the pornography. I'm addicted to sin. Charles is sitting right here. You can't see him, but he's just off to my left. And we run a recovery ministry, an addiction ministry, a healing ministry for Christians like us who wrestle with sin, who are filled with the Holy Spirit but struggle to change. 
You need help. You need transparency. You need authenticity. You need accountability. You need people in your lives. I beg you, make a choice. Do not continue to be partakers with them. Don't participate in it any longer. Pick up the phone this afternoon. Write an email. Drop into the office. Meet with Charles. Meet with Margaret. And begin a process of transformation and change. And you'll know, maybe for the first time in your life, even though you've memorized the Heidelberg Catechism and you've prayed the sinner's prayer a hundred times, you'll know for the first time in your life that you are saved. Because the Spirit of God, by the power of God, will change the child of God. And that's what you want. I know it's what you want. When the Spirit of God, by the power of God, transforms the child of God, there's something amazing about that. So let me encourage you. Don't wait another day. Pick up the phone, write the email, contact Charles, and make a decision to no longer participate with them in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Because you're light. You're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the impact that it has on our lives as we study it, as we read it. It doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes what it is that you have sent it out to do. And I pray this morning that there would be people in our congregation who would understand your call in our lives to radical love and forgiveness and to radical sexual purity, something that our culture doesn't understand, but something that you call us to. Father, I pray that today would be the day of transformation for just perhaps one, but maybe a dozen or more of our brothers and sisters that they might know beyond any shadow of a doubt that they are in Christ because the fruit of the Spirit becomes overwhelmingly obvious in their transformation. Grant that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.